And now I'd like to introduce today's guest panel. Please join me in welcoming Jamie Watt, Robin Sears, and Richard Mahoney. Jamie Watt was the Senior Communications Advisor for the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party in the landmark 1995 and 1999 elections and held the same position in the office of the Premier. He has chaired several campaigns and is a highly regarded speaker and political panelist, and I can't go through everything on his resume because we don't have enough time today. Robin Sears has over three decades of public policy and public affairs experience. He is a former national director of the New Democratic Party and served as chief of staff to then Premier Bob Ray. He was also Ontario's senior diplomatic representative in Asia Pacific in the early 90s. And Richard Mahoney was executive assistant to the Right Honourable Paul Martin and has advised politicians at all, at all levels of government in Canada. He is a former president of the Ontario Liberal Party, a former candidate, and a frequent media commentator on Canadian politics and public policy. Welcome to our panelists. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you uh, for taking time out of busy calendars uh, to be with us today. We're excited about what we have to chat with you about today and hope that you will find it as interesting and perhaps more importantly useful as we have. On Tuesday, Canadians made Stephen Harper's life and his task as Prime Minister much more complicated. Even with a stronger minority government that we gave him, the challenge of managing Canadians' expectations of him and his government is manifestly more complex today than it was in 2006. The way Prime Minister Harper sees the outcome of Tuesday's election and the way some other participants, the media, and perhaps some of you in the room see it, is quite different. As Mr. Harper has said on many occasions, he views the path to a stable, durable, conservative majority government to the replacement of the Liberals as Canada's natural governing party as a long march, as a marathon as opposed to a sprint. This campaign, the campaign just finished, he achieved several important milestones. He broke through Ontario's resistance. He won new levels of support amongst Canada's ethnic communities and new Canadians, and he began to make urban inroads. It also looks like he's bridged the gender gap with important groups of women, and significantly, he held Quebec, he held his beachhead in Quebec in the face of very strong political crosswinds. At the same time, while Monsieur Duceppe had some success in frightening Quebecers about the prospect of a Harper government, those very same claims had no impact in English Canada. So whether you accept Mr. Harper's view of his achievements or whether you prefer the conventional wisdom that he, he fell short, there isn't any question that he did make significant political gains. The significance of these gains, however, is matched by the challenges his new government must now confront. Having been elected the first time in the midst of a booming economy, spending and resource allocation choices were relatively easy. This time, his voters faced diminished economic prospects, increased worries about their retirement savings, their pensions, their jobs. This time, frankly, their expectations will be much harder to meet. It will be harder to meet when you consider 
a stretched budget pantry and demands far greater than any government's ability to deliver. Mr. Harper is now an incumbent returned to office. No longer able is he to point backwards or across the aisle as reasons for failing to perform. A strengthened new Democratic Party in Ottawa, increasingly skeptical provincial governments in Ontario and Quebec, limit his political freedom to maneuver. And of course, then there's Danny Williams. <laughs> cross pressures are the story not only of the outcome of election 2008, but cross pressures are the story of the road ahead. And the list of those pressures is a long one. Failing Ontario manufacturers, declining government revenues, an unhappy Quebec, conflicting environmental expectations among his supporters, Canadians who want strong economic measures in a time of global economic crisis, and all of these delivered with the finesse required to avoid political bloodshed. Juggling these competing demands will test this Prime Minister's ability to lead Canada in uncertain times. To explore these questions and uh, to get under last Tuesday's results, Insight talked to Canadians. In the 60 hours since the polls closed, our team of 20 researchers and consultants have traveled from coast to coast and analyzed and assessed what we heard. We were in Ottawa this morning for breakfast. We're here for lunch today. And I should pause for the moment to say the only way we could have done that is with the help of our good friend Bob Deleuze from Porter <laughs> Airlines. And I know I'm not supposed to do a commercial, but I'm going to do one anyway. Not only was Porter the only one that logistically could get us here, and it's their downtown to downtown service, but I can tell you the way they whisked us through the airport, you would have thought we were traveling with the President of the United States. The service was, was amazing. We're also here today because of the, the great support we have from Blake's. I'd like to thank Rob as well. Blake's does understand how business impacts government and how government impacts business and they understand the value of understanding that and bridging those gaps. We're very grateful for Blake's for the enormous support they've given us in this project across the country. We'll, be, we'll, have, the, uh, we had, we'll have the privilege of being in, in Calgary for them on Monday morning. So for the second time in as many elections, we, Insight, have been the first to determine why Canadians voted as they did, what it means, and crucially, what they expect. In our work this week, if there was one commonality of views, it was this. This election was a complete waste of time and money. In some quarters, particularly here in Toronto, feelings verged on anger. In others, like Calgary, participants were ambivalent. Importantly, though, there was a widespread consensus that the election had come at a price of more than just money. That the election had prevented meaningful action from being taken to protect Canadian Canadians and to protect our economy amidst a financial crisis that had become apparent mid-campaign. For the five weeks of the election, nothing got done. And now the Harper government needs to play catch-up. It needs to get to work right away to appoint a cabinet ASAP. The runway is short and the takeoff should be swift. One man in Halifax complained that the news of the crisis itself and its implications would have emerged earlier and been understood earlier, but for the election. 
Now, in this election, Canadians were looking for a reason to vote. They were actually looking for a clear vision or a program, something on which to galvanize themselves. And frankly, they were disappointed. There was a level of disengagement and frustration with all of the party's lack of ability to present a compelling message. This directly contributed to the historically low voter turnout we saw on Tuesday and was well reflected back to us in our work this week. What's more, there was broad, broad dissatisfaction with the choices on offer. One woman spoke for many when she said, I held my nose and voted. Now, participants clearly identified Stephen Harper as by far the best choice for uncertain times. They did, though, yearn for some more empathy in the economic recovery messages, and while they certainly thought he was up to the job, their enthusiasm was distinctly muted, even amongst his own voters. Whenever participants discussed who they saw as Harper's opponents, and when they even when they turned to the future, they mentioned Doucette, they mentioned Leighton, they mentioned the media. Tellingly, apart from a few in Quebec, one person was almost never mentioned, Stéphane Dion. Canadians' relationship with Monsieur Dion was over before the election began. More in sorrow than in anger, Canadians had, in the terms of a modern relationship, simply moved on. Conservative attacks on Dion's leadership eventually came to be seen as unnecessary and gratuitous. Voters had already closed that chapter. And even among lifelong liberals, Dion was seen as barely votable. And that's why there's such widespread expectation that he will be gone as leader of the Liberal Party of Canada before the new year. Among the names that elicited some excitement were Ignatieff, and Ray, and Kennedy, and McKenna, and interestingly, Justin Trudeau. Tuesday night on, we heard from our friends in the media confidently proclaim three truths. One, Canadians deliberately chose a minority government. Two, every party and every leader lost. And three, each party suffered gaff damage. In our view, Canadians disagree. First, outside of Quebec, participants weren't scared of a Tory majority, and it was not a factor in the way they voted. It was, of course, in Quebec a different story. Almost every voter told us that they voted strategically. Some wanted to stop a conservative majority, and many just couldn't bring themselves to vote liberal. Quebecers were glad to have a minority. They want, Quebecers want, the Harper government on a short leash. Now, as there always is in elections, there were winners and losers. By the end of the day, people are clear. Stephen Harper won, and Prime Minister Stephen Harper has been given a mandate. And finally, we found that people, those so-called ordinary Canadians that Sarah Palin likes to talk about, understood the difference between a substantive policy misstep and a so-called puff-and-poop gaffe. You know, we heard something new in our work this week, something that needs to be explored over a longer period, but something that we wanted to highlight and share with you today. There's emerging evidence that Stephen Harper is making significant inroads with an important segment of female voters. We found women were in tune with Harper on issues like fiscal management and the role of government in the economy. Understanding this, that, that television ad the Conservatives ran in the campaign's final week, you may have seen it, it's the one that showcased a mother concerned about the economy, placing her trust in Stephen Harper, 
now not only makes a lot of sense, but was clearly a clever move. Cross pressures, tensions, even paradoxes, our research highlighted all of what lies ahead. Canadians very much continue to vote with regional interests in mind. Conflict between these interests will continue to present challenges for the new government. Alberta and Quebec, of course, represent polar opposites of regional opinion. Quebecers voted for those seen best to defend their interests, whether it be in culture, or crime, or values, or who they believed understood them. When asked why they didn't support Harper, the universal response was, you can predict it, cuts to the arts. We peeled away at that, though, and we found something more profound and indeed more challenging for Harper. Look, it's undeniable that the Conservatives' approach to young offenders and arts funding were unpopular and out of sync with Quebec participants. But that said, Monsieur Dusep was very skillful, clever even, in using these issues to light a fuse. And while it could have been safe injection sites or immigrations or a host of other policy areas for that matter, those choices gave Dusep the ability to reawaken that deep and abiding sense amongst Quebecers that, still, that Harper still does not understand us. What a difference two years makes. In our study conducted after the last election, Harper got points from Quebec participants, not only for his efforts to learn and, and subsequently master French, but for his effort to understand their issues. And now, however, despite the attention lavished on Quebec by the Harper Conservatives, the culture and crime policies appear to have raised almost all of this hard-earned goodwill. And as Prime Ministers before, Prime Ministers before him have discovered, courting Quebec inspires resentment in other parts of the country. Many participants said, enough is enough. In Halifax, the Maritimes won in, was the frustration voiced. Atlantic Canadians see the West awash with oil money. They watch as the federal government lavishes money on struggling sectors in central Canada, and they see themselves left behind. There was a hint of sadness amongst Maritimers that their neighbors, friends, and family have had to pack up and leave for work elsewhere. It's time, they say, that offshore revenue deals are redone. Calgarians are still haunted by the specter of the National Energy Program all these years later, a powerful memory reawakened and triggered by Dion's green shift plan. Interestingly, while Calgary men demonstrated a high degree of concern about the environment, the carbon tax was a non-starter in the home of the oil sands but they are concerned about the environment as anyone else in the country. British Columbians are keenly aware of their diversity. They see it as a source of tension with the traditional English-French duality in Quebec and the federal government. And as always, Ontarians, we Ontarians, we always see ourselves as Canadians first. But we've changed a bit, and we've bought the argument that our province is no longer being treated fairly by the federal government. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, regional tensions and considerations still don't drive our votes. Paradoxically, Canadians want to see consensus and action at the same time. What a Canadian proposition. Canadians' conflicting demands of Mr. Harper place him in a really unenviable position on a whole range of issues. It's not that you can say that he's damned if he does and damned if he doesn't, but his path to political maneuver, his path forward, really has become a tricky one. 
Canadians expect decisiveness and action from their leaders, especially in these uncertain times. But they also want to see Harper build consensus with the other parties. Now, the difficulties here for Harper were on view as soon as this week, on Wednesday, when he, had, he announced his six-point economic plan. Now, people didn't hear much about the plan because it was announced the day that we were chatting with folks, but we did have a chance to explain the plan to them. There was mild approval. They sort of thought that uh, this was the kind of quick action that would be needed from a seasoned economist. But, but there was a problem for Harper because as soon as he announced his six-point plan, up pops Mr. Layton to say, hold your horses. Who told you that you have a mandate to do this? It's a challenge that Harper will have to contend with over and over again in this new parliament. When it comes to the economy, there was a, a real mood to borrow an American phrase, a John McCain phrase of country first. The participants want all the parties, every last one of them, to grow up. They want an end to partisan bickering. They expect the parties to deliver what the country needs to get through these times. They expect the Prime Minister to do something. They give him wide latitude to ram through a tough economic package through the House of Commons. In particular, men said, just get it done. Stephen Harper, as I said earlier, is a Prime Minister with a mandate to lead. Now, because this is Canada, he has to do that in a cooperative, nice way with the opposition. His tone needs to be different. Participants want him to adopt good ideas when they come from the opposition. They even would be happy if he would consider an alternate point of view and would welcome that approach. They want him to listen and to be respectful of those with whom he disagrees and those who disagree with him. A little bit of honest consensus would go a long way with the voters. Now, there was a time, most of our recent memories, when calling for tax cuts and eliminating deficits was a controversial, even extreme approach. We assumed that that argument had been settled long ago. And yet, for the first time in more than a decade, we are beginning to see the view that the federal government can run deficits under certain circumstances. Global economic headwinds have softened the public for the possibility that the era of surpluses is over, at least for the time being. No alarm bells went off when we raised the suggestion of deficits. There's no question, however, that these participants remember the previous deficit era and the lessons learned and have no tolerance for ad hoc or partisan deficit games. Were the government to go into deficit for strategic reasons, the participants expect that the government to have a plan to return to a balanced budget and to do so quickly. Deficit sending is not something they're prepared to consider normal. It cannot, be it cannot be permanent. Now, I, I, don't, I don't want to overstate this. Uh, these are the beginnings of a fissure. But as the economy worsens, these fissures could become cracks. And we don't really see any reason why other fiscal or economic dogmas, however sacrosanct they may have seen, would not be off limit for debates. I mean, if deficits are touchable, then what isn't? Now, this, of course, creates a serious tension between accommodating these concerns dealing with an economic downturn and Prime Minister Harper's core voters for whom a deficit is an anathema. There's a hesitant, a, a hesitant willingness to allow the government to use fiscal and economic levers to intervene directly in the economy. People recognize that the government may need to make strategic investments. The government must, however, put country first. 
That means if there's a choice between a Canadian interest and a foreign one, we must protect the Canadian interest. Now that proposition, of course, is at odds with Harper's Base, which opposes direct intervention in the economy. And yet the call for a Canada-first economic policy is consistent with the Prime Minister's national vision and therefore must be a consideration. Over and over we heard from participants the fundamental belief that Canada's banking system is strong because it's different and insulated from those in other countries. People believe it's precisely because our financial institutions have been held back that they have remained isolated from the financial crisis sweeping the globe. So to those of you who would advocate that our bank should now expand internationally through mergers and acquisitions or, or merge and lessen competition, I can tell you you're not going to find any public support. During the election, you recall, Harper hammered repeatedly on the strength of Canada's financial institutions and regulatory regimes. He harped on that report that came out saying our banks were the best in the world. Well, guess what? People listened. His campaign success has now become a governing challenge. Canadians believe that our banks are different and that they're not in any way affected by the global credit market crisis. This, of course, poses a conundrum. If support for the financial services sector becomes necessary, it's going to be met with pretty strong resistance from the public. If those measures which might be considered to strengthen our banks, mergers, cross-pillar expansion, foreign investment, there isn't just skepticism, there's hostility. And mind well, this isn't coming out of old-fashioned bank bashing. It arises from a perception that our financial institutions are strong and profitable. It arises from a perception that we got it right and the rest of the world got it wrong. And don't even think about asking for anything that could be interpreted as a traditional bailout or subsidy for manufacturing business that was going into difficult times. People were clear about that. It's just good money after bad. Mid-campaign, Harper announced his pledge to remove all Canadian troops from Afghanistan by 2011. And when he did it, it was seen as a shrewd, some would say cynical, political move, a, a maneuver intended to neutralize the issue before Canadians got around to casting their ballots. And most polls we've seen over the last while have shown that Canadians are split on the issue of support for our mission. But for a party which had declared that Canada would never, never cut and run, this about face came to many as a surprise. Well, the research showed this week that while Harper's Afghanistan announcement left many opposition heads spinning, he actually actually read the mood of Canadians. Across the country, we heard again and again from both supporters and opponents of the mission, both, that it was time for us to bring our mission to an end. Halifax was the only exception. It's, as you know, a community which has historically shown strong support for a military. But apart from, from, apart from Halifax, it was unanimous. While participants expressed concern about the costs involved, and Quebec participants were more likely to be opposed in general to foreign military missions. Our most surprising finding was that even among supporters of the mission, there was a widespread sense that the time was coming when we should wrap things up. They felt we'd been there long enough, that we had conducted an honorable mission, and it was now time to come home. The release of the Afghan mission's costs have given Canadians an acceptable new reason to support withdrawal. It's simply too expensive. As the economy worsens, the costs will continue to stoke opposition. And in short, Canada has nothing to be ashamed of if we bring that mission to an end.
You know, Mr. Harper is justifiably admired for his strategic judgment and skill. As the economy tumbled, he successfully exploited his advantage as both incumbent prime minister and a respected economist. All right, maybe about two weeks too late. The challenge of his first term, juggling an unstable minority with a greenhorn government, was daunting. His challenge, however, this time, infinitely harder. A stretched, a stretched treasury with exploding demands for financial assistance, defending a possible deficit to a base likely to be furious at the prospect, an expectation that he will deliver tough economic measures to help Canada weather this current storm, but do so nicely. The need to relaunch his efforts to support, build support in Quebec at a time when many Canadians are getting fed up yet again with his perennial courtship. Strengthening financial services when Canadians aren't really convinced that a case has been made for their support. Defending his timing for an Afghan exit when the revelations of surprising costs have convinced many Canadians that the mission should be over now. And finally, managing a minority with a leaderless Liberal Party, an energized New Democratic Party, and a resurgent Bloc Québécois. The expectations of this second Harper government will be immeasurably harder to fulfill than the first. The year ahead will reveal if Mr. Harper is the strong leader in difficult times that Canadians somewhat grudgingly chose. Critics are already betting that he will not be able to navigate the stormy winter ahead, that he has not rebuilt a successful Conservative Party, that he's merely presided over a one-term minority government. Since Pierre Trudeau and Brian Mulroney faced similar cruel tests, we have not had such a captivating, nail-biting year ahead in Canadian politics. Prime Minister Harper will need to overcome fate, economic gales, the opposition, and his own combative approach to leadership to prove those critics wrong. Thank you very much. Jamie. Um, Richard and I are going to do the cleanup act here. You may uh, observe that there's a sort of hidden blue, former orange, red tinge to the speakers up here, and that's not accidental. Um, I just wanted to echo what Jamie said about the effort that went into this project on behalf of uh, our two firms. As you know, uh, Navigator and OEB Enterprise are the partners that form Inside Canada. About 20 uh, people in our two offices worked for the last three days, and I want to single one of them out who will hate me for it. Uh, Joseph Lavoie, who does all the beautiful pictures and graphics for us, hasn't been asleep since Wednesday and is still hunkering down in the corner over there. We, we hope so anyway. So. <laughs> well, thank you to all of them. I want to pick up where uh, Jamie left on the issue of country first. Um, it's a McCain slogan, yes, but it has seeped into Canadian political consciousness. Obviously, it came up unaided in a number of groups across the country. And I think it has at least two implications. The first is that partisan bickering is over. Canadian patience for politicians behaving politically in the worst sense of both those words is over. And there will be sharp rebukes and punishment for anybody who doesn't understand that whether they're the Prime Minister or an opposition leader. The country has to come before partisan interests, in other words, 
is, is the first sense of that term. And the second, is, as Jamie pointed out, is that Canadians have a very deep nationalist pride at the same time as they have an abiding and building economic anxiety about the winter ahead. So they want to make sure that politicians govern rather than bicker, and they want to make sure that they govern in Canadian interests in tough times. And I think it's fair to say that at least for a while in the campaign, Mr. Harper didn't get that message. Not at first. Not at first, uh, Robin. I, I just want to say on my own behalf, I got the message uh, country first a year and a half ago when I went into partnership uh, in business with a bunch of conservatives. Uh, but the, so I was a little bit ahead of the game in that regard. But, uh, but Mr. Harper, seriously, in the election, um, you know, many observed had a bit of a tenure that he, he lacked the empathy gene. His former campaign chair, uh, Mr. Flanagan, said recently in a paper this week I read, that uh, once he sets on a course, he thinks it through, but he finds it difficult to change course. And I think it's clear that the empathy question, at least in the election, uh, did cause him uh, some trouble. Um, I think in part because he thought that if he showed a change in course, that would only feed the notion that, um, that there was something really wrong if, you, if, if he abruptly changed course. But that failure to get the empathy question uh, probably uh, prevented him from getting a majority, even while international uh, gales and winds were blowing. Jamie mentioned in his, uh, in his presentation how the groups across the country identified these cross-pressures, or we've identified from the groups these cross-pressures that are uh, to bear on Mr. Harper. So despite the risks in that, though, uh, there's also for Mr. Harper uh, considerable opportunity. Um, the if Mr. Harper ends up being successful over the next year in bridging the most important of these conflicts to Canadians, which is on the economic front, it, it would be seen as a big political win for him. Um, he has a chance there, really, to begin a legacy uh, that will work very well for him. And that opportunity, that opportunity to bridge those uh, conflicting pressures, the first one, of course, that presents him is on the economy, and it does present a bit of a challenge for the Liberal Party. And here I get to be rude about the Liberals because Richard doesn't want to be. But he agrees with me, I think. Um, I think the Liberal Party right now is in a really challenging uh, dilemma. The circumstances of the unfolding leadership transition are almost all impossible for them to benefit by vis-a-vis -vis Mr. Harper. If Mr. Dion were to announce next week that he's going immediately and the starter gun goes off for the leadership campaign, the inevitable partisan bickering will emerge instantly among all the candidates directed logically at Mr. Harper. That will not resonate well with Canadian voters. If they name an interim leader and try and impose some sense of order and calm over the course of the winter, that would be an improvement, but Harper being Prime Minister, and as Richard says, having the opportunity to do a leadership um, uh, gambit involving a tough economic package uh, still puts them on their back foot. And, and even if they wait until next spring or summer before a newly elected leader arrives, 
we anticipate that, that Mr. Harper may well have built up a big bank of goodwill among Canadians if he successfully navigates the challenges ahead. So it's a very tough strategic challenge that the Liberal Party faces in, in the next few months. But there is one riposte. Well, while Mr. Harper may be able to jam the opposition parties on the economy, uh, the, one of the stunning things that we learned in the groups was the near unanimity on Afghanistan. Uh, Canadians have uh, moved on, on on this question, too, uh, as Jamie pointed out in his presentation. So while the Liberals and the Democrats in particular may respond with an attack on Mr. Harper on Afghanistan. Now, he has made clear what his timetable is, which is to pull up by 2011. But given what we heard uh, on, uh, on the, the night after the election, um, he, people think we've done our bit now, that we have more than met our obligation, that um, the, the costing, as Jamie pointed out, coming out of the middle of the election, only furthered this uh, line of thinking. So Mr. Harper's sort of jammed by his timetable. He will probably continue to assert, yeah, yeah, I said we're leaving, we're leaving, we're leaving in 2011, and they're going to say, what about this, what about that, what about the cost, can't you do better, have you given notice, have you given notice in writing. So this will be a, a, a true test, I think, of the difference between this parliament and the other ones. Um, Counterintuitively, though, it may be that this Harper administration is more willing to consider applications uh, for support of Canadian business than it was in its first term. You've already seen Mr. Harper, Mr. Flaherty, make this turn in the lead up to the election with the uh, assistance to the auto sector. Um, that shows a pragmatism towards industrial assistance, which in our view is right on the money in terms of where the, the groups are at. However, there is an important coda here, and that is this, that anyone who is applying for, these, for an assistance for a business project should be very uh, certain that government will uh, re require them to offer things like contractual guarantees of specific deliverables, limited by very strict conditionality, maybe even a piece of the upside on a project, um, and a likely demand for early payback of any financial support. The upside for Mr. Harper on this again, though, is a Nixon to China thing. Mr. Harper may be more protected than the leaders of the other parties will be uh, on this issue because he's not seen as a person overly willing to intervene in the economy. But you can expect some tough um, regulatory scrutiny in all sectors, I would say. Uh, the, the deregulation has taken a hit uh, in the last little while. Um, you might even expect, given what we've seen in the group, a softening uh, to plans to, re uh, to, uh, to d diminish or, uh, or lessen the rules on foreign ownership in other sectors. Canadians have time for that now, in a way they might not have a year ago or two years ago. Now, they have time for that, Robin, but they don't have a lot of time for the silliness of politics and the gaffes that we saw during the election. Yeah. Let me just echo the point that Richard just made there. I think that our general impression of the skepticism of Canadians today is that anything new that you plan to do last spring or summer for introduction this fall, you better look at it again through the perspective of a much more skeptical and hesitant Canadian electorate about anything new. In the banking sector, for example, a new product or a rebranding could elicit the response, are you in trouble? Why are you doing that? As opposed to an interest in whatever the feature or benefit might be. The wasted election we talked about has a, 
uh, a consequence for the upcoming parliament, and that is that Canadians expect there should be action soon. Asked when they thought parliament should uh, return, the answer was tomorrow. Uh, asked what they wanted to see parliament devoted to, addressing the economic problems immediately. Uh, the Canadian electorate has now very little patience for any reason uh, of hesitation offered by government or opposition. Let me just quickly say something about the gaffe question, because we're going to run out of time here, I fear. Um, a lot of gaffes in this election didn't seem to make much difference to partisan choice, but we would encourage opposition politicians and cabinet ministers especially not to conclude from that that there's a gaffe uh, freedom now in government. Uh, in this new atmosphere of skepticism and high expectation, nobody who makes a mistake can expect to get away with it without a fairly heavy price, minister or opposition politician. Um, we think that probably also extends the style of the next parliament. Jimmy went on at some length about what the Canadians expect Mr. Harper to behave like. Um, the, the day of a confidence motion on every single issue He's probably passed us. He's going to, I think, have an expectation out there that he behaves in government and in parliament much like previous minority governments have done, which is compromise, reach out to the other aisle. Uh, we've talked a bit about the banking industry uh, here, and one of the things that stunned us in the research uh, was that Canadians don't believe that Canadian banks are in need of government support. So if the occasion arises where that has to happen, there's a big hill to climb. Neither are they persuaded by the wisdom of bank mergers. And ten years ago, I remember uh, being tangentially involved in the, uh, in the, uh, in the merger discussions around the, the then-Kretchen government. And Canadians had no uh, stomach for allowing those bank mergers. Well, ten years hasn't changed that. Um, so if the occasion arises where banks do require assistance, seek to merge, seek to change things, uh, looking for um, uh, a major thing, they're going to have a tough sell to do. And the public, as Robin suggests, thinks that banks should stick to banking. 20, 20 hours of, uh, of research. We could talk to you all afternoon. I'm going to get uh, both uh, Robin and Richard to give us one 30-second wrap-up because I'm going to take a couple of quick questions and get everybody back to work or on their way home. Let me close with, with two verbatims from, uh, from the discussions we had. A woman here in Toronto um, in the groups that we did on Wednesday night said that she had recently, on the advice of a friend, bought a GIC from Canadian Tire. Everybody in the group looked at her and thought, why would you do that? That's not a bank. You buy banking products from banks. There's a new conservatism about who should be doing what with whom in the private sector. And a woman in Vancouver in a group moderated by my colleague Chad Rogers said, the only place I feel my money is safe is in the bank, so I'm not prepared to have the banks do anything except banking. This is a time of a return to stick to your knitting business model. Richard, really fast. Right to questions, I would say. Sorry? Right to questions. Right to questions. All right, for Richard, and uh, just give us a fast answer to this. How much of a factor is Monsieur Dion's leadership debt in the timing of his departure? I, I don't know. Um, most of the leadership uh, candidates have a debt from last time. The current laws in, uh, in our country make it very difficult for candidates to raise money after the fact or even during the uh, the, uh, the instance of the leadership race. Um, his campaign does have a debt, and that must weigh heavily on him. I've never I don't, haven't spoken to him about that, but it's a problem. And the, the, it's, it's, uh, the additional problem is in the laws of Canada, if that debt is not erased over time, the Act requires Elections Canada treat it as a donation, and therefore 
um, an illegal donation. Last so, fast question call. to uh, Robin Sears. The questioner likes your red tie and your blue shirt, wonders where the orange is. And the question is, uh, <laughs> is, is Jack Layton locked into attack mode, making him the wrong leader for the NDP at this time? No. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for... Not a uh, answer. <laughs> yes. Thank you for your attendance and your attention today. We appreciate it very much. Madam President, fellow members and guests of the Empire and uh, Canadian Club, I have the honour to express your formal thanks to today's Insight panel. There's a quote, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I'm sure that was the feeling of many Canadians, at least 41% in fact. Those 41% did not vote, did not engage, perhaps one could argue signaling a sick society or perhaps just a society sick of voting for a federal government three times in the past four years. It also means that with only 59% voter turnout, we not only have a minority government, but a minority government that only receives support from 22% of potential voters. At a cost of $300 million to run an election, that comes out to $22 per vote cast. Jamie, Robin, Richard, Thank you for sharing your insightful perspectives and for telling us why we should care and why we continue to need to be engaged and also what we got for our 22 bucks. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. This meeting is now adjourned. <laughs>